Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the wise linguist and anthropologist Mary Catherine Bateson. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Okay. So Krista uh, is on the line now. If you, if you are hearing her, just give her a shout back. Hello? Krista, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Ah, and I can hear you now. Well, hello. I was adjusting the wrong volume now. <laughs> You can be forgiven for that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure. Um, Chris, I have a little... There's some weird sound in my... Oh, okay. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So do you need us to do... Okay. So now tell me this. You, You do, at this point in your life, like to be called Mary Catherine. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So, um... Uh, can you let's talk about something banal for a couple of minutes while we get our 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 volumes right? <laughs> okay. I don't want to start in talking about anything significant um, unless we know it will work. So just tell me something like, uh, let's see, what did you have for breakfast? Oh dear, that's a long time ago. <laughs> um, Was lunch? I have, to, <laughs> I have adopted a lazy person's breakfast of one. Uh, you know, protein bar and a hunk of cheese okay. and a cup of coffee. Sounds good. How are we doing? Chris, or is that good? Do you need more of us? Okay. I think we're fine then. Um, then we can get going. Um, you know, well, I, I, see I have a cough button. Okay. Well, you know, and don't worry about that because we can, um, this technology is magical and we can correct and improve on things like coughs. So so just don't even worry about that. And and the the great thing about this is we get to have a real uh, meandering conversation and we'll uh you know, it's like you talk about composing a life, we'll compose a radio show <laughs> afterwards. Well, and yeah. Let me make one small request. Okay. My last book when it was recorded, you know, for people who want to listen in the car. Yeah. Uh, was put through a program that took all the pauses out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it almost unintelligible when the pauses, and you can't tell where a paragraph ends, you know? We won't do that. I, I know what okay. you mean. There's a, yeah. there's a fear in the audio world of silence, but silence is a part of a conversation, too. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've felt for a long time that one should not be embarrassed to think in public. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. And so, in fact, yeah. it allows other people to think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, don't worry. Don't you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> um, well, so let let's um, let's plunge right in. Let me just say first of all, I you know I've read you across the years. Um, I read "Composing a Life" and I I read um, "With a Daughter's Eye" years and years ago, and then. Um, have been really intrigued by what you've been writing more recently. So just 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 by way of saying, I'm really um, delighted to be speaking with you. And then I've had a chance to really steep in your work these last few days again, 
getting ready for this. Um, so, so I do want to talk about you and your wisdom um, in, a, in as um, vivid a way as anyone I know. Um, you also always weave that together with, you know, your your parents who were such amazing characters and thinkers. Um, and it's so interesting just to look at the beginnings of your life. I mean, um, it seems like in some ways your childhood was this vast anthropological experiment beginning with <laughs> breastfeeding, <laughs> which most people just can't say about their their, their infancy. <laughs> well, it was a great advantage. I mean, after all, I had the benefit of ideas that are now regarded as, as the, better, the better form of, ch- of child raising. Yeah. Uh, when I was born, you know, middle-class women didn't nurse babies. That would have been an animal-like thing to do. Yeah. Uh, only the very poor actually breastfed. Uh, so I was very lucky that my mother, having been in Bali and New Guinea... Uh, believed that breastfeeding was good for babies and for mothers. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes you're called Dr. Spock's first baby. It seems to me, in reading about that, that your mother was educating Dr. Spock as much as he was advising her. Absolutely. <laughs> he was young, fashionable, and uh, being psychoanalyzed. <laughs> and she figured, it, we're talking 1939, that if he was being psychoanalyzed, he must be pretty progressive. <laughs> so she <laughs> <Open> would just open-minded. <laughs> uh, so, so let me. I, I I'm. Um, if I ask you to describe the spiritual background of your childhood, um, what whatever connotations you bring to that language of spirituality, you know, how would you start to talk about that? Well, I would start with the fact that uh, the day I was born, my mother received a telegram from her husband who had sailed to the UK to enlist, the war having begun in Europe and not yet, the United States wasn't yet involved. And he sent off a cable saying, congratulations on baby Catherine do not christen. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> and meanwhile, she was so busy trying to, you know, persuading the... she Having seen babies in several different cultures, uh, she had very clear ideas of what she wanted to do. She wanted to have no anesthesia, and she wanted rooming in, and she wanted to breastfeed, and she wanted the pediatrician present at the delivery. Hmm. Oh, and she made a movie <laughs> of the delivery. And all of that was decades before any of this became something that would be a cultural norm. In Well, exactly. Yeah. As you say, in the middle class United States of America. And she, as she thought about all of this, uh, she decided that I should be born in what used to be called the French Hospital in New York, which was a, a Catholic hospital, because if she told the nuns that it was it was better for the baby if the mother didn't have anesthesia, they would stick up for her. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, 
she was, I think, fairly determined to get her way. So when I was born on December 8th, which is a Catholic holy day, it's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, um, she added the Mary. I mean, she and her husband had agreed that I would be Catherine. Oh, she added, she the, added Mary the Mary then. Yep. So she didn't christen you, but she called you Mary? She never called me Mary, okay. but it's part of my name. Huh. <laughs> she waited She waited until Gregory got back to find out wh- how he wanted the the baby to be called. She called me Sugar for the first year of my life. Hmm. 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 You know, it's very interesting. I mean, it comes through in your writing, but even more in talking to you. Um, you're, you have such an intimate identification with your parents, but also there's a, there's a distance. Like you even talk about yourself in the third person sometimes as a baby, which was something about how the life that you were born into was about living and reflecting all at the same time. I don't know. Yeah, I, I've tried to track down um, my first lesson in participant observation, actually, and written about that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, that's what anthropologists do. They, they live with the people of the culture they're studying. They eat with them. They hang out with them, ask them questions, all of those things. Um, So they're participants, but they're also observing, and they're also self-observing. Yeah. And there was an app. Should I tell stories now? You don't want. You're not recording yet. No, we are. Go ahead. We're recording. Yeah, no, go ahead. Okay, so one day when I was probably, oh, about eight or nine, uh, she took me uh, in a cab. She said we were going to visit a family who had a little boy named Bobby, and the parents were worried about him, and he wasn't behaving well in school. And she said, um, I hope you can you will enjoy playing with Bobby, and you can tell me how he seems to you. Hmm. Right now, Bobby was an awful pain in the neck. I mean, he hit me and he pinched me and he ignored me and he wouldn't share his toys. Right. And um, there was definitely a problem there. Uh, so after a couple of hours, uh, she fetched me from the playroom, and we went out and got a cab to head for home. And she said, "Now tell me about Bobby." And I said. Where I had learned this, I don't know. I said, I'm going to wait till we get home, and I will dictate to you what I think about Bobby (laughs) so that if another child ever has to play with a child like that, they'll have a resource, they'll have a way of knowing about it. Mm -hmm. So even your play dates were anthropological experiments (laughs) with you as the anthropologist. (laughs) They often were, (laughs) yeah. So, but actually, yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge benefit in 
in being a participant observer. Uh, there are people who are just observers and don't engage with others. There are people that uh, just engage and don't think about what's happening. And to learn to, to go back and forth between or simultaneously be learning, observing, um, but at the same time be fully present was a marvelous thing to learn. And it's, it's, it's a marvelous way to live, actually. Well, it's certainly, um, it's, certainly a, it's certainly a ripe field for the work of becoming wise. Mm-hmm. And I think your book, when did you write Composing a Life? When was that published? Oh. Uh, <laughs> Is that a... I think um, around 19, Composing a Life. I should. I, I brought some dates with me. Hang on. This is a this is a pause we can get rid yeah, of. Yeah, it's upstairs in my office. I I bet it didn't. Yeah, but I've got me. them in my purse. Mm-hmm. But did I? Well, don't worry about it. It it 19, 1991. Oh, we have our crack researchers behind the glass. So nineteen ninety one. I mean, okay. I think that is a phrase that you brought into the world. Um, that's uh, very evocative and rich and. Um, and I think it actually follows on what we've just been talking about, um, this discipline and way of being that you imbibed growing up of living and reflecting. And so just, just start, you know, just talk a little bit about that notion of composing a life and how that came to you and what you, what you mean by that. Well, at that point, I had been dean of faculty at Amherst College for several years with a faculty that hadn't gotten used to the idea of co-education yet, hmm. um, which was perennially and was habitually antagonistic to the administration, which is not uncommon. Um, and I was very aware at that point in history that women were going back to school, back into the workplace, uh, trying for the first time to combine family life with an active career, and finding it very difficult. Um, talking about juggling, yeah, which to me is a is a terribly anxiety-producing metaphor. Right, and it's a very. I mean, you say you say that in your writing, and I I, I wrote that down because it, it it does throw into sharp relief what a what a different way of approaching composing a life is than rather than juggling. Well, and wouldn't wouldn't it be a nice thing if we didn't use quite so many um, military <laughs> metaphors? I think 91 is a little late. I think the book was out it was before early that. that. Yeah. Um, I'll look it up. We'll look it up. But people would say to me, you know, I can't get my life together. I try different things. My husband says I'm not a serious person because I don't have a consistent career line. I feel like such a failure. 
And what I saw was that they were working harder than their husbands and doing a pretty good job. And I was looking for a metaphor that would allow them to realize that the effort they were making to work out a new kind of woman's role was creative, that it was an art form. Yeah. You say and life as were, an improvisatory, as improvisation, as an improvisatory art. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, people think improvisation means you don't practice, but I have a, a cousin who is a um, jazz flutist, and I know that jazz musicians practice improvisation <laughs> by right. the hour. Right. And improvisation is a, is a high order of skill. Yeah. You know, you, 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 meant, you say in Composing a Life, so again, this was some decades ago. This was, as the, this was in the latter part of the 20th century, and now we're in the early decades of the 21st. You, you said, in a stable society... Composing a life is somewhat like throwing a pot or building a house in a traditional form. The materials are known, the hands move along familiar tasks, the fit of the completed whole in common life is understood. But you know what you just said about the the situation of women um, in those latter decades of the 20th century is true of everybody, just about everybody graduating from college now. That, as you said, the consistent career paths um, aren't there for anyone in that I sense. I think that's the case. I mean, I think we now live with constant change. And whereas there was a certain predictability in women's roles um, up to the end of the 19th century, uh, that predictability is lost. And so... They're on stage without a script. Right. <laughs> and so are kids graduating from college on stage without a script. Yeah. Yes. And which, so, which again, I think just, just playing with this language and kind of delving into this language of composing and, you know, here's another piece of your writing. I like to think of men and women as artists of their own lives working with what comes to hand through accident or talent to compose and recompose a pattern in time that expresses who they are and what they believe in, making meaning even as they are studying and working and raising children, creating and recreating themselves. You know, that metaphor was simply a gift. Um, a bad metaphor can create chaos, literally. <laughs> right, right. Um, I was at a conference. Oh, sorry. I'm about to tell you about my more recent metaphor. Uh, composing a further life? The, the, well, in, I, in composing a further life about later adulthood, yeah. um, I talk about what I call active wisdom. Yes. And that, too... You know, it's, 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 it's very hard to find things to say about aging that don't make people uncomfortable. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, if you advertise a talk on the subject of, let's say, productive aging or positive aging or something like that, people don't want to come. Um, whereas the concept of active wisdom, yeah, of of having a period before, um, be- becoming frail and multiple medical problems and so on and so forth, uh, when you have the harvest of a life of learning and thinking and observing, and at the same time you're still active. Yeah, you you talk uh, it's, about it's, you talk about. It, I have to tell you, it's wisdom on the hoof. <laughs> Well, you say there's, you talk about adulthood one, um, the first phase of adulthood, which is what we traditionally have thought of as adulthood. But then with these suddenly ever longer uh, productive lives, you talk about adulthood two as a new developmental stage, which I like wisdom on the hoop. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is. I think it's, it's. It is so profound a change, it really affects our status as a species. It's something that gives me hope that we will deal with climate change. We will learn to be more careful with the ways we use the planet. Um, Because what's been happening is we've been thinking... Uh, living longer and thinking shorter. We've been accelerating our activities. Mm -hmm. And gosh, if we have more people that have lived into a certain degree of wisdom, maybe we'll think twice. I want to come back to that. That's so important. Um, I mean, you also... As you as you yourself have composed your life, I mean, you composed your life. You did become a linguist and a and an anthropologist, um, which I mean, the field which your your mother, in fact, both of your parents really helped create, um, has radically evolved. But and but you are part of that field. But I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? You're. You know, one thing you said about your mother, as your mother composed her life, she made her marriage and her family fit (laughs) into that. Mm -hmm. And you've done it very differently. Um, You, I mean, can I just ask you this? There's this quote of your mother, of Margaret Mead, that I've um, discussed with other people, and I don't know if it's true, so I can ask you now. Did she say, so both of your parents, what did you say? Your mother had... Your father, your both of your parents had three marriages. Is that right? Each of them was married three. Each times, of them was married yes. three times, and I've heard that your mother said that everyone has three marriages, even if it's to the same person. Is that true? Um, I haven't ever heard it quoted in exactly that way. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's that's adding even if it's to the same person does make sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, marriage, I don't know if you've heard this statistic, that the average duration of a marriage in the United States today 
is longer than it was in colonial times. Yeah, because of because people didn't live as long, right? And women died in childbirth. Exactly. Yeah, divorce could be called a replacement for death. Yeah, I mean that's a cynical way of putting it. Mm-hmm. But the point is, we think of marriage as as a relationship between two mature people hopefully, um, who love each other and settle in to constancy and continuity. And in fact, those two people are growing and changing all the time. I mean, just as you have to keep learning your infant you know, from week to week, because the yeah. infant is growing and discovering things. Uh, marriage requires a constant rhythm of adaptation hmm. between two people who are changing. Hmm. Um, and much as much as we would like the constancy, it's actually quite a challenge. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think constancy is something that we're that good at. Just, um, it doesn't even, it's not even necessarily something that feels desirable in many contexts. I think that's true. Hmm. But I think, I, I mean, it's funny, one of the things that I tend to talk about a great deal is the amount of learning that takes place throughout adulthood. You know, you don't graduate from college and the president of your college says, stand up. You are now, the president of Harvard used to say, you now join the company of educated men. (laughs) Right. Well, as far as I can see, they're out of kindergarten. (laughs) And they've got a huge amount to learn. Yeah, you, um, you you do. There's such a contrast between this truth you're telling because it is truth. It's really common sense. I mean, you're just you're talking about the reality we all know, and yet it stands in such contrast to the focus, the ambition, and focus that we press on ourselves and on our children, and on on, on children. It seems at younger and younger ages. Alas, one of the things we press on them is competition. You know, because we have so much bought into the idea that competition is a law of nature and the only source of creativity, that we are pushing children to be competitive rather than cooperative in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, that is not a true biological fact. There is competition in, in, as part of the evolutionary process, but there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of cooperation also involved, even at the cellular level. Mm-hmm. 
it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, as you're saying that, I realize that's true that we, but it's a, it's a very, when we say, oh, this is built into us, this is who we are, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a very simplistic slice of Darwinism, of evolutionary biology, but there's, but even evolutionary biology is, these days, is paying so much attention to cooperation and, 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 and there's this much broader palette of science that describes us in so many other ways that you're part of, too. Co-evolution, endosymbiosis. What's that? Well, when you were in high school, you looked through a microscope at a cell, and one of the things you learned to recognize was the nucleus of the cell, right? Mm-hmm. You made pictures of it. Well, the earliest life forms had no nucleus, and on the whole, bacteria don't have that kind of nucleus. They're, si- they're single cells without a nucleus. And they're alive. Um, And the question came up, how would a nucleus evolve? What process of of, uh, mutation and selection uh, would create the nucleus, which is really the organizer of what's going on inside the cell? Hmm. Um, And a... uh, a biologist uh, named Lynn Margulis, who was a microbiologist studying single-celled creatures and their progenitors, came up with the theory that the uh, the cell with the nucleus actually came about by one single-cell organism taking up residence inside the other in a way that was mutually beneficial. Hmm. Um, er, All the cells in your body have have nuclei. They're called eukaryotic cells. The cells in the green plants have little islands of chlorophyll in order to do photosynthesis that is the base of our entire food chain, right? Yeah. And it is now understood that they were originally green um, kinds of like algae. They took up residence inside these cells because they needed a home. (laughs) <laughs> that they didn't have. And so for millions of years, every cell in every leaf is actually a cooperative enterprise. Hmm. I mean, that is such... To look at something like that is a totally different way of looking at nature than saying nature... Uh, red in tooth and claw. Right, right, right. Right? The yeah. survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest was a good way of describing human behavior when Darwin was writing. Right. And he, in fact, borrowed the phrase from a an early sociologist. 
Um, but when you look, and when you look at an ecosystem, where hundreds of different organisms of different species are interdependent, that's what nature shows us. Is yeah. interdependence, interconnection, relationship, and not competition. And one thing that's so interesting in the vision of life that you've been developing is, in fact, precisely that view also of how we are as um, co- collectively. And and the but and the importance in that picture of of how we construct our how we compose our lives right as as the building blocks of that interdependence. I mean, um, you 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 know you use the word home just a minute ago talking about the natural world and and homemaking is something you've been talking about um, also is something that you've that you've grown into as you've grown older, and I do want to. I started down this path about ten minutes ago and didn't get there. But you know, in in contrast to your, to the um, to the lives of your parents, you know, you ended up marrying one man, and you've been married a long time. You've 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 composed a very different uh, domestic life. This is true, and I. I've, I value that, which, which isn't to say that it's always perfect, you know, or always easy. Um, but I think it's an effort worth making. I think people walk away from relationships too easily. And that if there's one thing we need, and we that we need to learn how to do it is to love each other. You you tell this story um, in a few places that when you fir- first met your future husband that you were telling him about your life and your parents' failed marriages and your sense that with these role models you could never sustain a commitment. <laughs> and that somehow that very <laughs> evening it ended with the two of you talking about when you would get married. <laughs> That's right. Indeed, we did. Talk to me about what the word homemaking um, holds for you. Well, in composing a life, I looked at the way I and four other women have tried to integrate the different aspects of our lives, career with family. And I also looked at the way people behaved in their careers. Um, And I became very much aware of the extent to which women in the world of business very often maintain an awareness of whether the decisions they are making are good are for the general good. Uh, they'll notice around a committee table 
that somebody's shaking his head and saying this is going to lead to trouble. Um, they'll notice discomfort or distrust and try to resolve it. Uh, one of the women was an engineer who was working on developing a fairly high-tech product. And, and as she would describe trying to support the engineers that she'd hired that were working together, I kept thinking she is creating an environment in which learning is possible. Hmm. And that is what a home is. Hmm. I mean, that is what we want the homes that we give to our children to be, places where they grow. Um, they grow in many, many different ways. Um, they learn how to connect with other people. They learn how to care for others. Uh, they learn particular skills. They learn their own capacities and how to trust other people and how to trust themselves. They learn what respect is. Um, so that became my definition of a home. And when I started defining a home that way, I could see that Jeanetta Cole becoming president of a historically black women's college was creating a home. And the other women, uh, each, each in her way, was creating a home. Maybe, I mean, Joan Erickson didn't have as much of a career life as the other women did. But her husband kept moving from place to place. Mm -hmm. And I had this visual picture of having visited her um, after they came to the United States, first in California in two different houses and then in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, and how, beautiful, how beautifully she arranged things. Uh, to be comfortable and relaxed and aesthetic. Kind of the design of a life, not just a house. Well, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's that's the metaphor of mm -hmm. homemaking. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's not a fashionable word now, as you know. Well, I had a marvelous time, actually. <laughs> you know, when you're writing a book, you meet people and they say, what are you working on? And I would say, oh, I'm working on a, on a book about homemaking. And you could see them, you know, yeah. this look of scorn. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, something's coming together for me as you're talking. Um, let's see, somewhere you describe, I'm very interested in the question of how social change happens, how human change happens and social change happens. And I think that curiosity runs through your work as well. And somewhere you talk about your mother's uh, enduring question was what kind of world can we build for our children? Um, and it seems to me that you are seeing the metaphor of homemaking as um, a version or a variation on that question that is potentially as profound. 
or perhaps more more what is um, appropriate to this profoundly interconnected world that we inhabit now? You know, um, uh, I'm blocking on the word at the moment. Um, but one of the things that that uh, biologists have have said about human beings is that we retain many of our infant characteristics throughout our lives. Um, you've heard stories about oh the people that wanted to raise a lion in their home, <laughs> people that have wanted to have, raise a chimp in their home. Um, other stories of trying to tame a wild animal, and when it matures, it loses its flexibility, and the relationship breaks down. Um, and human beings, and there are typical physical changes that go with maturity in many species that are more dramatic than in human beings get a lot more hair, for instance. Um, and in a sense, human beings remain childlike. They're, they're, they're open to new learning and even very deep learning that changes your personality, really, yeah. um, right through the life cycle. Uh, human beings remain playful. Yeah. And playful is a very, play is a very important part of learning. And experimental. You know, most other species they figure out how how to be a rabbit or a chicken or a an owl or a fish. <laughs> and that's what they do for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. I actually, so learning yeah. is us. Yeah. What was what was your mother's notion of evolutionary clusters? What was that about? Well, you've probably seen the the, the slogan that gets quoted all the time. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. That's a Margaret Mead quote. Yeah. Yeah. And we've it. never been able to find it in its first <laughs> uh, iteration in print. But that's a definition of evolutionary clusters. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that very often major accelerations of change came out when a group of people got together and learned together and dared to think new thoughts and then pass them on. And that's, you know, that's true of the, the, the disciples of Jesus, a small group that, pow, spread out, spreading ideas that they'd learned. Uh, it, it was true of the American Revolution, um, a group of thoughtful uh, colonists coming up with thinking actually about French philosophy mainly, 
and decided they wanted to be independent. Uh, it was true of the communist movement in Europe. Yeah. Um, it's true of the spread of Islam. So, and the point is that the evolutionary part of that was in the relationships between the members of those small groups. Yeah. Uh, feeding off of each other's imaginations and insights and wisdom. And then spreading them out in the society going forward. It's wonderful. Um, so I say to yeah. people, I don't know where that quote comes from exactly. Um, it probably was something she said in a lecture because it was, I know it was something she believed. Yeah. Um, but she wrote a book called Continuities in Human Evolution where she developed the evolutionary cluster right. concept. And the whole book is really an explication of that quote. And, you know, again, I, I, I do find echoes, but also um, I find that you are improvising or working with s some of the same convictions, but bringing them into a different world. I mean, here's something you wrote about your belief that, and again, this gets back to, I, I think this conversation we're having, what you're saying is so important um, for people to hear because... Uh, because the world is so vast and the problems that we are aware of are so vast. And yet, you know, there's this insistence that what you are doing in your little life and, or in the relationships you have has this power that we can't actually comprehend in the moment. I mean, here's something you wrote. You wrote about your belief that multiple small spheres of personal experience both echo and enable events shared more widely expressions of moment in a world in which we now recognize that no microcosm is completely separate, no tide pool, no forest, no family, no nation. Indeed, the knowledge drawn from the life of some single organism or community or from the intimate experience of an individual may prove to be relevant to decisions that affect the health of a city or the peace of the world. It's very boldening. A very central quotation. Mm. Uh, if 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 I were to say in one word what I'm talking about most often, I'm talking about interdependence. Now I'm working on a book, the title of which is "Love Across Difference," mm. and central to the thinking in that book is that love depends on a recognition of something in common and the valuing of a difference. Right. Um, you don't want someone just like yourself. You want someone enough like yourself so that when, so that you can learn new things from them. And, and you know, if you look at um, single-sex marriage, what you find is that there has to be a division of labor. 
it isn't it isn't that that people are setting up housekeeping with someone identical to themselves. Right, right, right. They That's not find what it's about. ways yeah. to be different, mm-hmm. and there and 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 to value the difference between them. Okay, so yeah. that's interdependence. And if you think about it, you'll realize that a lot of uh, women's traditional roles is carefully giving the men of the house their sense that they're indispensable, right? So we get them, get them to carve the turkey or... Uh, <laughs> Change the ceiling light bulb. I don't think we can put this on public radio. Sorry. We're we're frail and feminine, and we can't do that. Um, I I mean I'm caricaturing it a little bit, yep. but in every successful marriage, there is a division of labor. Right. Has to be. And. In those single cells, eukaryotic cells that are actually a, a symbiotic relationship of one organism inside another, it's the interdependence that makes it viable and makes it such a huge evolutionary step forward. Right, right. You know, I'd like to talk to you about religion. Um, I, I mean, it's it's very interesting. Your your parents had, you know, as we've discussed, complicated lives and philosophies, and and complicated relationships with religion. Um, I mean, you describe your father's studied English atheism. But across his lifespan, he was investigating conscious purpose, and the San Francisco Zen Center was an important place for him, and the Eastland Institute, and you read him passages that he loved from the book of Job while he was dying. Um, and your mother, you know, you, you quote this, um, there's this, these lines of Kipling that I was just so taken with, Kipling's description of heaven, which your mother loved, heaven as a place of tireless creativity, but each for the joy of working and each in his separate it's star. His separate star. Yeah. Will paint, paint the thing as he sees it for the God of things as they are. <sighs> Isn't that a wonderful line, the God of things it as they are? It is wonderful. I love it. And it seems to me that across your life, you... You were more overtly curious and uh, kind of um, moving towards religion and wanting to understand it and what its place in your life might be. Well, it's become a very important part of my life. Um, I think I think my mother did something very smart. Um, Gregory. I didn't just say don't don't christen this child, don't baptize this child. He said said essentially was saying, don't bring her up to be a churchgoer. Yeah, don't teach her religion. 
um, and and he remained scornful of religion all his life, actually. Organized religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and she both respected that and worked around it. <laughs> because she arranged that I would spend many weekends, especially during the war when both of them were... Well, my father was in the South Pacific, and my mother was back and forth to Washington, and she also was in in England for a while. Um, I spent a lot of time with a college friend of my mother's, um, who I called Aunt Marie, uh, who took me to church. Oh, yeah. Um, And... And occasionally my mother took me to church. She was a lifelong member of the Episcopal Church, um, high church. And nobody, but nobody said you have to do that. Nobody said this is what you're supposed to believe. Nobody put me in a kindergarten class. In fact, I think, I suspect that my mother carefully said to Aunt Marie, don't let this child near a kindergarten class. Or a Sunday school class, you mean? I, that's what I meant, yeah, Sunday yeah, school yeah. class. Yeah, <laughs> She didn't believe in Sunday school. Well, um, well it, it makes sense, uh, that ritual... That she that she was that she gravitated toward a, a tradition of high ritual. I mean, you worked with her on ritual later in yes. her in mm-hmm. when you were when you were an adult. And um, I mean, I'm curious about both as a human being as a, and as an anthropologist. You know how you've come to think of the presence of these traditions among us. You know what they mean for human beings and and their integrity in this moment of change. Because that way your father was is really the way many, many people are growing up to be now. In, in, a, in a great, I mean, he was quite unique um, to be that. Uh, well, you know, his, his father, who was a distinguished biologist, uh, his father, William Bateson, played a major role in um, uh, getting the... Uh, the work of Mendel on genetics into the scientific community. Really? And, in fact, invented the word genetics. How's that? Wow. (laughs) Um, But his father insisted they they, they read the Bible to each other on a fairly regular basis, the parents and the three sons, because his father said... They didn't. He didn't want them to be empty-minded atheists. Hmm. Hmm. So actually, and his father was a, a collector of art and and a um, fascinated with the work of William Blake. Hmm. Um, so, and I think that was a factor too. So. Many, many phrases, concepts in the Bible 
and a notion of, of the sacredness of the natural world uh, were part of my father's thinking. Right. He just didn't like the clergy. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I said to him once, he said to me, you come from a proud tradition of four generations of atheists, and look at you. <laughs> <laughs> and I pointed out that his grandfather, who was a prof professor at the University of Cambridge, in those days had to be an ordained clergyman. To be, to be at Cambridge. To be, a to professor be on the faculty, yeah, yes. Yeah, right. Right. He was part of the first generation that was allowed to marry, in fact, mm. when it ceased to be a monastic mm. um, institution. And you know what he said? <laughs> I said, so your grandfather, you know, was, was a priest in the Anglican Church. And he says, an academic politician, that's what. <laughs> You well, know, your mother said this. You, you you cite your mother saying this very insightful, wonderful thing that too many people, when they reject God, go on believing in the devil. That many intellectuals have a sense of evil without a confidence in good. She did indeed say that, and she said it about some specific people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, no, so, I think, yeah. I think um, what shall I say? I think I'm not happy with the division of between people who say I'm spiritual but not religious. I don't, does anybody say I'm religious but not spiritual? I don't know. Yes, in fact, I do. I do know people who say that. It has different. Well, there meanings. are a lot number of people of whom it's true. Mm -hmm. Actually, mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot, a large number of people, for whom, who have no sense of a a, a personal relationship. Um, with with God, with something sacred, um, but it's a very handy institution. <laughs> well, yes, or or also the. I, I mean, I'm aware. Um, in fact, a scientist wrote to me this, you know, this year and said, I I I'd like for you to talk more about this because I think that there are scientists who are who are ver who revere the ritual um, and the artistry um, and community. Um, but don't but don't associate with that word spiritual. I mean, I also know. I also think of a Unitarian Universalist chaplain I know who says she's religious but not spiritual because for her it's all about what happens between human beings and that's all she needs to know of God. So I'm interested in how people are playing around with that. But I think you were going to say something about spiritual, not religious. Well, to me. The starting place is, is the sense of wonder. And that can take you into science. It can take you into art. Uh, other, other human beings are amazing and beautiful. 
um, the natural world around us is not degraded by being studied because the more we study it, the more fascinating and intricate and elegant it turns out to be. Um, that's, that's my interpretation of the book of Job, incidentally. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, my father used to say that Job gets over his distress by looking by learning some natural history but i don't think it's it's it is a matter of i mean god you remember in the book of job god says do you know you know why the rains fall here and not there when the deer bring forth their young etc etc there's all that that it um, sounds like a quiz on on uh, <laughs> nature studies that's right yeah um but that's not really what it is. I, I think the point about the book of Job is that Job is a virtuous member of an institution. He's respectable. He obeys all the rules. He's complacent. Um, he goes through the appropriate rituals that were required and his community at that time. But he's lost his sense of wonder mm. Mm. at anything. And then he goes through this period of, of many, many losses, uh, and he resists the idea that he's being punished for his sins because he, he's by all the conceptions of his community. He's a very virtuous guy. I'm a good guy. Why are bad things happening to me? And then God says, look. Just look. Realize how beautiful it is, how complicated it is. Hmm. What what The wonder of creation. And he wakes up. <laughs> you know, it sounds frivolous, but when I started thinking about this, I, I actually got interested in this sense of wonder because For a series of historical reasons, I know a lot about Judaism. I lived lived my last two year last year of high school in Israel, right, right, and graduated from an Israeli school and had to be know a lot about the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, and then I came back and decided I wanted to learn about Islam and sort of studied Arabic. And then you spent a good amount of time in Iran before the revolution. You had About made seven a home years. There. Yeah. Well, six years, say. Mm -hmm. um, and I have great respect for these other traditions and, uh, and, and uh, a lot of knowledge. Um, I mean, it's 
you know, I'm, I'm a member of a Catholic church, and I know more about the Old Testament than most people. <laughs> right. Um, so I thought I should be doing something to address the Islamophobia, the hostility, the prejudice that has grown up in this country after 9-11. And there were there have been a lot of projects, people trying to do exactly that. Um, educate the public more about Islam, um, make them familiar with the magnificent artworks associated with the Islamic tradition, yeah. uh, the achievements in science and et cetera, et cetera. The way I went about it was to say, what is it that makes me as a Christian empathize with a Muslim? Where, at what point are we together? And what struck me is that what actually all three of the, the religions that come from Abraham, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that what we all have in common is the sense of wonder that leads to praise. That is to say, when you, when you go from wonder to a religious context, shared worship, something like that. It takes the form of praise. And in spite of the huge differences in other aspects of the traditions, a different set of rules, expectations, behaviors, ta-dum, 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 ta-dum. Praise is central in all of them. So do you feel like, um, even as an anthropologist, that that, that that sense of wonder is as much what religion keeps alive for human beings as, as ritual? Yes. I think ritual is an important part of it because ritual is constantly building. You repeat the same thing at different stages of your life, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and you're putting new layers of, of meaning. You're re-recognizing the familiar. Um, hmm. There's a... Uh, It's a wonderful phrase in a familiar Christmas carol. It's in Old Little Town of Bethlehem. Uh, and I think it's in the second verse that the angels are above the stable and, and while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. <laughs> now that juxtaposition of wonder and love 
And it is what we feel with a new baby, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what we, we can, we need to learn to feel about the forests and the lakes and the, all the life around us and to see them all as alive. You know, you you wrote a beautiful, beautiful um, essay about um, your father's death in 1980. And I'm not sure if this has anything to do with this conversation, but I just want to bring it up because I just thought it was so beautiful. You, but you know, you, you there's all there's like there's a lot of drinking sherry and eating Stilton cheese, which he loved, <laughs> which feels to me like the bread and wine. I mean, right? It has that same centrality. And you talked about the various things you sent with him into the fire, volume of Blake's poetry and flowers and a crab and um, because you said of the, uh, in memory of the way he had taught each of us to study tide pools and the way he had taken a crab with him year after year to his opening classes at the San Francisco Art Institute to open his students' eyes to the fearful symmetries of organic life. And then you said Nora, which was his... Your stepsister, right, brought a bagel because he'd half once sister. Half, half sister, sister. oh half sister, right? Because he had er- once Eric brought the crab. Oh, okay, and Eric's a step brother. Step brother, all right. And she brought a bagel because your father had quipped at Eastland that the hole in a bagel would be reincarnated as a donut. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'd forgotten that. <laughs> But that there's this there's something you wrote again. I you know I just want to say your writing is so beautiful and uh, and so I'm I'm doing a lot of bringing it into this conversation. But I feel like it has its rightful place. You you wrote, and this is to me it gets at l- ritual as um, something that is also of that uh, well that is that there, even the rituals of our personal lives have more than just personal meaning, right? You wrote. We talk in this country often about property rights. We talk more rarely about the shares people have in each other's lives and about people's rights to participation and pleasure, especially at the moments of passage. The right to throw a handful of earth on a coffin, the right to stand up to catch a tossed bouquet and dream of one's own future wedding, to kiss the bride or groom or hold a newborn. Couples today devise new rituals or set up housekeeping together in ways most meaningful to themselves without wondering whether meaning is something they owe to a larger community? It seems like such an important question, statement to me. You know, I think... I think it's a great mistake when people associate religion with a fixed set of beliefs. Um, The beliefs are there, but they're expressed in the shared ritual. And
Well, you know, it's 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 interesting. One of the things that that I've done for the last few years um, is I I'm a lector. I'm a reader in my church. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the readings recycle. Um, not exactly the same ones every year, but over, I guess, over a three-year period, they they recycle. Uh, and they're related because they're organized around the calendar and the different events, um, biblical stories that are going to be read that day. And one of the things that has fascinated me about first I just thought this is this is a business of I'm going to read well and loud enough and slow enough and do a good job I mean this is this is a performance kind right, of thing right right but what I've found over time is first of all that the the readings have a different meaning when they're read from the lectern during a, during mass. Mm. When they're when they're read in the context of a community. Mm. You know, I've practiced, so I don't stumble. I've been over them. I've thought about them. So you mean it's different even when you practice by yourself and then when you stand before the community and read it aloud? It's one thing that I practice by myself. Mm -hmm. When I stand before the community and I look at these people, and that's the other thing. My relationship with the people has changed, which I didn't expect. I didn't know that would happen. And how do you explain Um, that? What is that about? Well, you know, one one way of looking at Christianity is to say that we should always be finding Christ in each other. Um, and, you know, that's not always obvious. I mean, here are all these people <laughs> yawning and scratching and trying to get their children not to um, throw spitballs. I don't know what. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the community comes together, and here are these words that have been read and reread and reread and reinterpreted for 2,000 years. When you think about <laughs> how many people on a given Sunday are trying to find something fresh to say about something that's been read and preached on in <laughs> hundreds of churches for for thousands of years, <laughs> thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it boggles the mind, but they do because you are always different. You are always meeting the ritual 
a little bit different from the way you were last week or yesterday or whenever, uh, confronting different things in your life. And it, 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 there's a resonance between the tradition and the present that makes it fresh. I don't know how better to put it. It has that. It's it's like it, it it becomes part of the improvisation, right? Because you're improvising, you're composing your life, then it has a different place at different yeah. stages in that. So, I mean, we 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 we're running out of time. This is so wonderful. But I, I do want to we we touched a little bit on the thinking you've been doing more recently on composing a further life and and this almost this new evolutionary stage, developmental stage of active wisdom, active adulthood beyond what we had considered the adulthood where you retire at 60 or 65 and then fade off into the sunset. I wonder, you know, are there things you've learned, things you're thinking now um, as a person, as a wife and mother and as an anthropologist and as Margaret Mead's daughter, you know, that that you, that surprise you, that the thoughts that you don't think you would have been able to have. Um. Oh, yes, quite often. <laughs> quite often. I mean, of course, I'm cheating a little bit. I mean, when I wrote Composing a Life, I was writing about young women early in their careers and families, which was where I was. Yeah. And now I'm writing about people in old age, and I'm 75. Yeah. And that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's... If you... I mean, and, and actually... That book was meant to to continue through to death. And I found myself with this new life stage that nobody seemed to know about. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I concentrated on because... And I also found myself in the course of writing that book adapting, adopting a, a new definition of spirituality. Hmm. Um, because I watched people thinking about issues that had not been important to them before in terms of their relationships with other people or with society or taking the time to reflect on their lives. And I don't think there's any single recipe but I have to say, people go on growing. <laughs> they, they become deeper. You, you, said in a, you said in another interview that we talk a lot these days about gap years for people graduating from high school. And you said there's, that elders should think about taking gap years, too. Well, see, I think a lot of what the society wants to push on older people is you're supposed to have fun now. <laughs> uh, 
I was I was on a on a panel at the National Press Club um, several years ago, and I was pointing out that the at that point the group of the age cohort that was coming into using computers and the largest numbers were people over sixty. Yeah. And very often they were being taught how to use the computer by their grandchildren. Right, right. <laughs> and Newt Gin Gingrich was on the panel. And he said, uh, he said, Dr. Bass is absolutely right. It's very important for old people to learn to use computers. <laughs> Why, I know a couple that because they could use the computer to search... They were able to go on three cruises a year instead of just two. <laughs> well, that is the message a lot of people are getting. Hmm. You worked hard all your life. Now you should play and spend money. Obviously, the new market. Yeah, obviously we're talking about a certain, certain segment of the population also that can afford that, right? I mean, I just heard today that... The largest growing segment of the American population is poor elderly women. So, I mean, that's the other, that's the other side I'm of that sure. illusion. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, and, yeah. and look, we, we have a lot of ageism in our society. Um, and... The message, I, I feel passionately about spreading the message that older adults know a lot. Right, right, right. And if they continue to learn and share that and engage in society, you know, that may be, a, that may be our salvation. Um, because everybody else is so busy. You, and <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely critical that as a society, we do have social security because there have been many cultures and times in human history when, when you couldn't work, you were, you were just sort of allowed to starve. Yeah. But you you've also talked you've talked specifically about thinking about the future of the planet, ecology, something like climate change. Um and that this might be a place where grandparents and grandchildren, elders and the young might become a force. I I I love that, and I sense in my own conversations, both among young people, a sense of knowing their need for elders, and among elders, a sense of wanting to have a role but not knowing how to find that or assert it. And I wonder, and, and we're very segregated by age in this culture, as much as any of our other segregation. And I wonder how you think about how those kinds of twos, that language of your mother, the, uh, these evolutionary clusters or, or this new kind of collective homemaking um, 
how do you see that that might happen? Or how would you propose well, that it might I, happen? I was for a while, and I'm not an organizer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was for a while trying to uh, organize a movement that I called Granny Voter. Um, because I felt that one of the ways that people think about the future is by looking at their own specific children and grandchildren going into that future. You know, and will will there be trout in the lake for my grandson to catch when he's a teenager? Yeah. That kind of question. Um, And I do think that's part of it. It's very rarely pointed out that never has, never before that I know of, has a fundamental ethical change worked its way into the population from the children. You know, they get told a little bit about ecology at school, and they come home and teach their parents. So the intergenerational dialogue is is very central. You mean a part as, that it's the children have always been part of it. That that this change hasn't happened without apart from the children. Or no, I mean vast numbers of people mm-hmm. wouldn't know if their children hadn't come home and told them crisis, about it. Right. If their children hadn't gotten right. excited about whales. Yeah. Um, and. You know, people, kids are, they tend to look at particular species. Yeah. You know, they they care about polar bears or whales or what's been called a charismatic megafauna. (laughs) Right. But, But the animals that the children are interested in are part of, the living organism that is that is the ecosystem mm-hmm. that from you know microscopic members to elephants right yeah but get, when kids start saying you know mom don't leave the light on all night yeah dad You know, uh, don't leave the water running while you're shaving. <laughs> That's right. Um, let, let me ask you this. Um, this this large question, what does it mean to be human, which is a philosophical question, it's a theological question, and it's an anthropological question. It's a question your mother, Margaret Mead, and your father, Gregory Bateson, were asking how how is your it, it, i know it's a, it's also a huge question um how would you start to talk about how your sense of that has evolved in the course of this life you've lived perhaps in ways that have taken you by surprise or not 
I was going to give you uh, an excessively intellectual answer <laughs> uh, about having to do with consciousness. Um, and you made it a much more personal question. <laughs> um, Consciousness is important. Reflection is important. Thinking about what you're doing and what it means and the search for meaning. One of the things that I came to believe when I wrote that piece you referred to about my father's death, is that death is a very important part of life that we shouldn't deny. That we There, would, you, there wouldn't be room for children if the old <laughs> yeah. people didn't eventually get out of the way. Yeah. Um, but also that in spite of our terrible hubris and greed and competitiveness, that we can learn to see ourselves in proportion um, and realize that we're small and temporary and don't understand as much as we need to. Um, and that Simply to, to work for some kind of peace between human beings and each other and human beings and, uh, and other organisms on, and the planet is what we have to do. And we live in a time of, of real urgency where we we have to mine the insights of the past and we have to I guess one way of saying it is we have to learn to use the word we 
to include all of life on earth. That we have to get beyond the huge emphasis on individualism and competition and to learn that we are part of each other and we are we are part of the life of the planet and And we have to find we have to learn to experience that as a terrible and tender beauty. Hmm. And shape everything we do. To protect it. Mm. You know, um, you've said of, of your parents that they were artists as much as scientists, that their knowledge was based in carrying their books, even their scientific books, in different ways full of poetry. And I ex also experienced that in, in your writing and also in this conversation with you. Um, so I want to thank you so much for just being in the world and sharing as you do. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to share with my New Hampshire neighbors <laughs> and beyond. Yes. Um, yeah, we love New Hampshire Public Radio. Is that where you are? are you, yeah. Yeah. Um, we will let you know what's happening with this. Um, I think you've been in touch with Lily. And um, she'll continue to be in touch, and we may have some other questions, but um, very grateful that you made time for this today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful, too. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good to meet you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>